What is that music you're playing? That's really great. I'm having a hard time turning it off. <laughs> All right, there we go. <laughs> what was the music you're playing? It's an Alice Coltrane album. Oh, no kidding. Eternity. That sounds great. Your eyewitness to grief, this is Hell a Week Ago. We were joined by historian and writer Carrie Lee Merritt, co-editor of the collection Afterlife, A Collective History of Loss and Redemption in Pandemic America, which she edited along with Ray Lynn Barnes and Yohuru Williams. Like I told you last week, the collection is a history of how Americans experience, navigate, commemorate, and ignore mass death and loss during the global COVID-19 pandemic. So this week, historian Robin D.G. Kelly returns to This Is Hell to talk about his contribution to the Carrie Lee Merritt co-edited collection, After Life, A Collective History of Loss and Redemption in Pandemic America. Robin's essay is titled Buried History, The Death and Life of Donald S. Kelly, His Estranged Father. Robin is the Gary B. Nash Professor of American History at UCLA. In his in the essay, Robin uh, looks back at the life and death of uh, his estranged father and how writing an obituary about his father's death made him re-examine his relationship with his father and allowed him to grieve, which was made increasingly difficult as his father had died just prior to the outbreak of COVID-19 in the United States, making it increasingly difficult to mourn. In August 2022, Robin's Freedom Dreams, The Radical Black Imagination, was re-released in a 20th anniversary edition featuring a foreword by the poet Asia Monet and a new introduction by Robin reflecting on how movements of the past 20 years have expanded his own vision of freedom to include mutual care, disability justice, abolition, and decolonization, and a new epilogue exploring the visionary organizing of today's freedom dreamers. Robin was on the show back in 2017 to discuss his essay, Winston Whiteside and the Politics of the Possible, which was for the Verso collection, Futures of Black Radicalism. In that essay, Cedric, or I'm sorry, uh, Robin explored the radical black politics of scholar Cedric J. Robinson from his historical understanding of race and capitalism as inherently inseparable systems to his vision of the possibilities of politics rooted deep in struggles past and present, setting the groundwork for new possibilities in black radical thought and action for generations to come. Futures of uh, Black Radicalism is edited by Gay Teresa Johnson and Alex Lubin, we interviewed not only Robin, but also both Gay and Alex in a series of interviews featuring contributors to Futures of Black Radicalism. You can hear that interview right now by going to thisishell.com and searching on Robin's last name. That's Kelly, K-E-L-L-E-Y. Robin's writing has also been singled out by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis in his attack on AP African Studies classes 
in the state's schools. So today we're talking about the personal history of losing a father, the shared history of the early years of the pandemic, and the threat to history posed by Governor Ron DeSantis. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Lindsay Gorey. Lindsay, how is your week going so far? It's good, you know. I I think I told you Friday was my cat's birthday. Uh, he's eight years old, and he started playing the synthesizer like super well. He lays on it. I'm not kidding. For hours, I put a drone on him. I've been filming him. I've been documenting him. I think I'm going to start a Twitch stream for him. Yeah, you definitely should. You definitely should have put stuff up on TikTok or something. He was playing a drone in my apartment like all weekend, like hours. It changed me. It changed me. Did he fall asleep? Yes. That's yeah, yeah. awesome. He falls asleep, but he he also grooms himself. My other cat started playing with him. Like, he wants me to brush him. It started out like he would always interrupt me when I was playing. But, yeah, now it's just every single time I turn the keyboard on and start playing, he comes over. My so. uh, my uh, niece, she uh, her daughter, when she was like a year or two years old, couldn't sleep uh, very well, and so they would always take her for a car ride, and she would fall asleep. Finally, they figured out, you just take the car seat, you put it on top of the dryer, and you turn on the dryer, and the kid would knock out just like that. Just simulate wow. the exact same thing. That reminds me of my question if the electromagnetic frequency is good for him, though. Right. That's a good thought. It might be too good for <laughs> right him. right on and his thyroid or whatever. And all of a sudden, he might have super genius powers. You True. don't know. It could be good. It could be good. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell. Oh, yeah. Wait, Lindsay, what is this week's question from hell uh, for our listening audience? <laughs> this week's question from hell. What mission did you declare accomplished prematurely? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell gets their choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise they want. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can email it to us, but we must have your answer. By the end of this week's show, following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth, we will be announcing this week's winner. Lindsay, what is Jeff talking about this week? Jeff has a vision of illuminated dog paws. Okay. I like how you put a question mark at the end dog, there. Like, suddenly, pause. I was just like, wait, pause. <laughs> I don't get it either. <laughs> Coming up, dealing with death in the age of COVID, even those deaths that were not caused by the virus. We will have This Week in Rotten History. Lindsay will be sharing more of your answers to this week's question from hell. And we'll tell you everything happening on tomorrow's show, including this week's final guest. Maybe. Who knows? Not sure. Uh, we'll give you an update about that a little bit later. Look around. Seriously, just look around. This is hell. Having a relative die can be a very traumatic experience and event for the survivors. When that relative is a direct family member, it can be even more difficult. But who knows how we will react when losing a parent. If you are the oldest son, losing your father can be a real challenge. However, if the oldest son is estranged from his father, the whole thing gets increasingly hard to manage. Throw in that death happening right before a virus outbreak that becomes a pandemic and the whole process of mourning and grieving can linger as it is deferred to a later date. Now imagine being that oldest son of a violent father and being tasked with writing his obituary, returning to This Is Hell to talk COVID 
police violence, the death of a father, and hopefully we'll get to discussing Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' obsession with today's guest, historian Robin D.G. Kelly returns to This Is Hell to talk about his essay, Buried History, The Death and Life of Donald S. Kelly, which is part of Carrie Lee Merritt's co-edited collection, Afterlife, A Collective History of Loss and Redemption in Pandemic America. And and uh, her co-editors, again, are Ray Lynn Barnes and Yuhuru Williams. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Robin. Thanks, Chuck. Um, I just have to say before we begin, um, all my life I thought about cats in the band. I never thought literally cats in the band. So, <laughs> Cats, you know, the front man. That, yeah, you know, it's like we always so refer to, to jazz position, the, the cats. You know, so I guess literally the cats. I mean, that's amazing. I'd love to see that film. Um, I can get it to you. Don't worry. Yeah. You know, also, you know, you reminded me, Chuck, um, I forgot what we talked about. And actually, this is significant because I feel like I'm talking, I'm writing about fathers and grandfathers and the relationship between, you know, those gen that generation earlier generations and where we are today because winston whiteside of course was um cedric's grandfather had a huge impact on him um in the case of my father's it's well it's complicated <laughs> it's very it's very complicated but uh well let's just go back to that conversation that we were having before you mentioned in that interview how it made you reconsider all sorts of different aspects of black radicalism. It made you reconsider things like uh, decolonization, mutual care, disability justice, abolition. Mm -hmm. how, uh, how do you think you, that your father's, uh, your relationship with your father affected your worldview when it comes to your work that you're doing on black radicalism and African-American history? Seeing, did, do you think his, your relationship with him had an impact on the way that you, I mean, obviously it has had an impact, but yeah. what do you think that impact is that has had on your, the way that you write and approach history? It's a huge impact. The impact is on patriarchy. You know, that, that essay, it's interesting about that essay. I mean, there's two things. One, a lot of it was about discovering things that I did not know about my family's history. Like the fact that my, uh, the people I thought were my grandparents were actually not exactly my grandparents, but my aunt and uncle. Uh, but what, what, if there's a, a major sort of moral to the story, it's that patriarchy is fatal, you know, and patriarchy is, is not just, you know, um, you know, heteronormative, heterosexual relationships, patriarchy is about um, family. It's about, you know, parents and children. And in, in the case of my father, uh, he was a product of a family tradition where value is bestowed upon those people, particularly those women who can have children and those men who could raise children. Uh, as opposed to the way we think about black families as, you know, the, the absent father, you know, this is not the case with my family, uh, the present father and the father who, according to the Bible, um, who spares, when you spare the rod, you spoil the child, you know, and my father was the son, you know, at least adopted son in some ways of a very prominent uh, black Baptist minister who, you know, of course, they're from, uh, he's born in Winston-Salem, but they end up in Boston. So one of the things that I talk about was the way that patriarchy, you know, convinced um, my 
essentially my grand aunt, you know, the sister of my father's mother, to take my father, you know, as her own. Um, to and and then they had another sister, my aunt Florence, who uh, wanted so desperately to have children that she had a false pregnancy. And when the false pregnancy came to nothing, she killed herself at age 37. Now I remember that. So patriarchy is a killer. And, you know, and, and this is, I think, the, the key lesson in patriarchy is not just about violence and sub subjugation. It's that too. It's also about being devalued if you're not in the position of the patriarch. You know, so my father ended up kidnapping us. That's in the story. That's in the piece as well. He kidnapped us, held us against our will, uh, my sister and me, um, and we had to run away from home. That is also a patriarchal move because he had to have his children around him in order to uh, to feel uh, complete. And you know, Hegel writes about this. You know, um, in in his own way. <laughs> so but that's that's the story. So do you think that uh, is patriarchy, is it imposed upon us like capitalism or colonialism is, or is it something that somebody would call, and I hate using this word, that somebody would call natural? Um, nothing's natural <laughs> except some bodily functions. And even that's not natural because it depends on your environment. So um, patriarchy is something that is ideological which is to say it is imposed, but it's also embraced. The same thing with capitalism. I mean, capitalism can only work, you know, if there's a general consensus of what it's supposed to do, the benefits it's supposed to uh, uh, bestow upon us, and if it can hide the damage and violence it does and convinces us that you know there's no other system. Patriarchy is perceived to be natural, and that's how ideologies work. Um, you know, the the idea, and, and it's funny because this is tied to, to the right-wing attacks on us right now. Um, when uh when 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 the right says we refuse to acknowledge uh anything other than male and female. That's the same as saying we refuse to acknowledge anything except for the heteronormative family. And in the heteronormative family, uh, males are the head of household. Uh, females are the head of the domestic space, but nevertheless are subordinate to males. Children are subordinate to parents um, and elders, you know, rule ultimately. And so that becomes a natural order of things. When you break with that, it's queer, you know, when you break with that, it's considered, um, uh, you know, not normal, uh, uh, not normative, right? And so the idea of having families that are based on uh, collective participation in democracy, the idea of having same-sex families, um, the idea of having genders that's not, that doesn't even fall into male or female, but something in between or something that embodies both. See, all these things are challenges to patriarchy to a certain degree. And I think the most important thing, not the most important thing, but the important thing that we often uh, ignore is the idea that parents own or control or are tasked with disciplining their children at all costs. 
you know, and that idea of discipline goes back, certainly goes back to slavery. You know, it's not just, uh, of course, it's within the Western culture as, as a whole, but imagine what it means to live under a plantation environment in which the ultimate patriarchy is, patriarch is the master, and the master then hires or himself participates in corporal punishment of the enslaved, where the enslaved are treated as children at every single level. You could be 70 years old, right? And still have to sub be subordinate to the patriarch that is the master and the mistress of a plantation. And then that violence is then passed down to the children because that's how you keep people online. That's how you discipline them. And part of the argument is that we discipline you to save your life, right? If you step out of line, you can be killed. So we're going to basically beat you until you can submit and protect yourself, you know, which is a loving act in some respects, but a loving act that comes with it a lot of violence. And so in my case, and I talk about this in the piece, I experienced a lot of violence and I was a good son. You know, I did everything I was supposed to do. You know, I was, I was a straight A student. I ran errands uh, from my stepmother when we were kind of in captivity. Um, I didn't talk back. Um, I was I'd straight and narrow, but I still got beat, you know, uh, for the smallest things. And part of that has to do with this notion that the patriarch has to have complete control and submission of um, those underneath his, his, his rule. Uh, and that feels natural to those who participate in it, even those who are being beaten, you know? And that, that sense of being natural is what then governs our behavior, right? So that we become even more skilled at, at doing the right thing. But the problem with all this is that it's embedded or woven into uh, a quest for love. Because I didn't use the L word until just now. I mean, love is the thing that I know I was trying to get. Um, not just, you know, you don't act just out of fear. You act because you want something. And so part of the story I tell is what was involved in my own quest to get some love and, and have my father be proud of me despite the violence. And that's the tricky part of patriarchy is that it's based on bound, on, 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 on like bounds, bounds of love, you know, these are, you're bound together. Uh, and it's a strange love, but it's still there. Do you think that, because you were bringing this up, the enslaver enslaved relationship and its impact on patriarchy, do you think that affects the patriarchy within white families as well? Do you think the slave and slaver relationship when it comes to patriarchy doesn't just affect the African-American household and family as it even persists to this day, but it also has an impact on white families as well? Well, it doesn't have to. The reason why is, A, the vast majority of white families don't even come out of a slave context, slave-owning context. That's a fact. But there's plenty of patriarchy outside of the slave system. In other words, it's not the slave. The slave system is not the source of patriarchy. It is a manifestation of it, right? The patriarch is already there within Western culture from the get-go. You know, and I'm not saying just Western culture, but let's just focus on Western culture for a second. Um, the idea of, of a two-parent family 
the idea of a male head of household, that's a kind of universal thing within the West, right? Within European culture. So they didn't have to, all they had to do is reproduce uh, the household of the feudal land. Because think about it. Feudalism was also based on a kind of patriarchy, and not a kind of specifically patriarchy. The feudal landlord was the patriarch. Underneath the landlord were the vassals. And within the vassal families is a, a kind of miniature reproduction of that patriarchal relationship, right? So long story short, you know, we don't even need to go back to slavery to, as a source for black families is a particular kind of relationship to slavery. But for, you know, so-called white families, they say so-called because, you know, white people haven't been around that long um, as, as an entity. But for so-called white families, they're also dealing with legacies and legacies of patriarchy. This is why feminism is my politics. Because when you ask me, like, how did this shape my thinking, feminism, uh, politics around sexuality and freedom, around sexuality uh, and gender. These are very important uh, aspects of my own politics and the politics of, of, of the left, I think, because it's an attempt to break through what is a, 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 a tradition or system that precedes capitalism by a long shot, right? And, that, and again, I don't want to say it's universal because you have forms of patriarchy in, say, West African culture uh, where it's slightly different. You know, it's not necessarily monogamous. It's based on uh, female-headed households within a patriarchal structure. And then you also have, you know, uh, situations within all kinds of cultures, indigenous cultures, in which you don't have two genders, right? Iran's a good example. We had multiple genders until... Uh, the imposition of Western culture said you can't do that. You can't have multiple genders. You have to have two, right? Um, so that's already built in. So feminism is about trying to break out of that and produce a kind of freedom that is fundamental to all of us, even those of us who may not share the same class. I did an interview several years ago. By the way, I'm thoroughly enjoying this conversation because I haven't gone to my script of all my questions at all yet because <laughs> the things that you are saying are just absolutely fascinating. So a few years ago, and I, I apologize for not remembering the guest's name, she was discussing um, how within indigenous cultures here in the, within the Americas, especially in the United States and in Canada, within those indigenous cultures, you often find, as you were saying, a patriarchal system, but the matriarch is the leader of the household. And I mm -hmm. had so many people send me emails saying that those two things contradict each other, that there's just as much violence and abuse of women within indigenous culture as there is within Western culture. And it's because there is a patriarchy within indigenous culture and you can't have a patriarchy that saw this as a contradiction. You can't have a patriarchy when there is a matriarch in charge. How can that kind of patriarchy exist? If the matriarch is the person who is the head of the household, how is that a patriarchy? Okay, let, let's break it down. This is a really good question. Uh, one, part of the, the uptick in domestic violence within indigenous communities have, has nothing to do with tradition, it has everything to do with colonialism. And when you dispossess people of land and resources and then impose upon them, you know, Christianity, 
uh, you force them into boarding schools. You tell people like what's normal when in fact you're, you're telling them to overthrow much of what they've understood to be normative and replace with a new normativity. Uh, and then people are reduced to, to, to not having the kind of resources just to survive on. Uh, and then you, you, you know, basically circulate all kinds of uh, forms of drugs, alcohol, all these things. It's going to create a kind of chaotic environment, which is actually a break from a tradition. Now, um, there's a film called Mulad by the incredible uh, filmmaker Usman Semben. Uh, and it's set in West Africa, I think Mali. And it's a story of it's it's a story about patriarchy and resistance to it. So in a nutshell, um, Mulad refers to the ability of a woman, because women have their own households that are autonomous, that they could basically say to their husbands, you can't come in. You don't have that right. Or no man could come in. So Mulad is, is basically declaring that, you know, this is off limits. And what happened was that there were girls who were, were uh, had to submit to female circumcision. Female circumcision was not something that was practiced before Islam. And I'm not saying Islam is the source, but but the Muslims who actually dominated the community brought with them uh, certain kinds of rules, including female circumcision, right? And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that, that that's in the, in the Quran, that's not the point. The point is that there was another structure in the name of Islam that imposed certain kinds of practices. So this one woman, you know, the girls came to her, her household and they said, we don't want to go through, we don't want to be cut. So she declared mulad. So you had this fight between the Muslim clerics who were like, we don't acknowledge mulad because that's heathenism. That's before our time, that we're Muslims. And they're like, no, you have to acknowledge because this is tradition. So you have this fight over control of the household as protected space for girls. And she won that fight. She won that fight, you know, against another kind of patriarchal order. So all I'm saying is that in situations where you could still have inequality, you can still have patriarchy based on things like bride price, where uh, in order to marry, uh, in order for a, a man to marry a woman, you'd have to basically pay an amount of money to the family for the loss of that labor. Um, that's that's patriarchal. But what happens when you have within a patriarchal order, the capacity or ability within rules, regulations, and law and custom, where women could actually have some autonomy and power within that. Let's go back to the slavery example. Slavery example is a really good one because what because of the weakness of marriage, ironically, this is an ironic thing, the weakness of slave marriages, because people could be sold and split up any time, um, women on plantations often form networks to help and protect each other and did not um, uh, uh, invest so much into a kind of patriarchal two-parent uh, male head of household because you couldn't do that under slavery. Once slavery ended, there was a real struggle over women saying, you know what, I want my autonomy. Uh, you, what? You, wait, wait a second, you're going to take my wages? You have no right to take my wages. The law says the man can. The rules of engagement living in a plantation situation says these are mine. 
So imagine what that means, where with even within patriarchy, you find these spaces of autonomy and renegotiation that allows for not complete women's power, but some, some power, which then opens the door for other things. So fast forward to 1965 and the Moynihan Report in a time when um, uh, the federal government is saying, you know, we, we, that our problem is matriarchy, that black black families are run by matriarchies, you've got to fix it, make it patriarchal. Well, for a lot of women, they were able to exercise a certain kind of independence and autonomy, even using state resources in the form of welfare, to raise their kids, to escape domestic violence, to do the things that they can do on their own without having to be to be dependent on a patriarch. And that is in some ways opening the door for an emergence of feminism among national welfare rights organizations. We're like, we don't need a man. I mean, you know, so none of these things are fixed and they can't be fixed. The reason why is there's always resistance. And that resistance means that they have to renegotiate those relationships. That's my answer to that question. So your father imposed hierarchy with a, with a very heavy hand. Does patriarchy need violence or the, the threat of violence, intimidation to be enforced? Is supporting patriarchy, advocating for violence? Does patriarchy fuel domestic violence? Can you only have a patri uh, patriarchy with intimidation, with the threat of violence? Um, I don't, I can't imagine um, there not being a threat of violence. And violence, of course, takes different forms. It could be physical violence. It could be forms of deprivation. It could be verbal violence. And by deprivation, and, and here's the key thing, whether violence is, is involved, there's still a question of power. So the classic patriarchal relationship is one in which uh, women and children don't have resources. Those resources are distributed to women and to children by the patriarch, right? Because that's what holds them, you know? Um, so. I'll give you another example, which is uh, not so much from my family example, but think about lynching. Ida B. Wells had discovered something very early on. She wasn't the only one, but she was probably the most incisive um, observer. And that is the pedestal in white uh, property owning families was a form of jail a form of patriarchy. So here's the dynamic. White women, even in wealthy families in the South, were dependent on uh, men who were the property owners. In fact, when you got married, you had to basically pass your property on to your husband. You, you could be so rich, and but you still, your property didn't belong to you. So in exchange for their protection, you had to submit. And submitting meant that white women couldn't have consensual relationships with black men. If they did, they would be basically ostracized, punished, um, and they would lose their protection. So lynching was often a public act to not just terrify black people, but to basically bring the white woman out have her identify the rapist, which is a kind of, you know, um, Jacqueline Hall calls this kind of public pornography. 
Um, it's a very powerful way of describing it. And then that woman, even if it's a, a consensual relationship, she has no choice but to say, yeah, he raped me. And her choices are, of course, limited because she's on, she's she's supposed to be virginal. She's supposed to be pure. She's supposed to be chaste. This is a kind of locking in on white women's sexual desire. Now, I'm not saying that white women are not complicit in lynchings. Of course they are. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that even those who are complicit end up uh, having to deal in, with a subordinate relationship to the patriarchal order. You know, they don't have sexual freedom if they wanted to, you know, but they have other kinds of freedoms that black women don't have. Right. So all I'm saying is that violence is always there because violence is embedded in the culture of capitalism, period. There's no place where there's no violence. You know, nonviolence, even as a strategy, is about revealing the violence that, that lay underneath. Right. That's what Dr. King said. So violence is everywhere. So I can't imagine there'd be a patriarchy without the threat of it. But, you know, keep in mind, a lot of people, a lot of your listeners, probably, they might be like, grow up in middle-class suburban households, and they've never seen uh, anyone beaten. But what they might have seen or experienced was the consequences of divorce financially, for example, the consequences of, of stepping out of bounds uh, and what that might entail in terms of losing status, losing respect, losing dignity, and losing resources. Earlier, you used, used the word captivity to describe the situation within which children are in, especially in your case with your father, the situation that you are in with your relationship with your father within patriarchy. You said in captivity, but you also write in your essay that your father was in a prison of patriarchy. So you mm -hmm. were talking about what is embedded in the culture of capitalism. Is there an a sense of incarceration embedded in the culture of capitalism? Oh, well, I would say it's, it's carceral in, in, in the sense that um, it's a kind of trap. So let me just make the two connections because I think they're important. And I really encourage, I encourage uh, anyone who wants to read the piece, they can read it because I published a version of it in The Nation as well. Um, if you don't get the book, but I think you should get the book. The book is great. Yeah, get um, the book, get the book. Who cares yeah, about The, the book Nation? Is, get the book. It's fantastic. Right. It's fantastic. Yeah, it is. Um, but... In terms of my father's prison house of patriarchy, part of what I was talking about was he grew up uh, being beaten. He grew up hating his mother because he felt like his mother had given him up, his biological mother. And this is um, Lottie Hodges, the younger sister of the person I always thought of as my grandmother, that's Aileen. So in many ways, he hated his mother because he thought his mother gave him up. He lived underneath the shadow of one of the most prominent black ministers in the Boston area and was expected to like rise to the occasion. Um, when he stepped out of line, he was beaten. So he learned that these are the things that matter. A, women um, are treacherous. B, um, if your kids step out of line, you beat them. C, um, you are the head of household and you are not just the example, but you basically the one who needs to be in control. And D, no, and this is the Hegelian part of the master-slave dialectic, uh, as Hegel talks about, and as my father lived, no one could be a patriarch without 
subjects without children or or wife or whatever. Uh, just like no one could be a slave master without slaves. You know, your identity depends on it. So that then translates to us into literal captivity. I mean, literal. My mother uh, and father divorced early on. I talked about stories about, you know, him coming to the window with a gun and I'm in the bed with my mom and my father thinks someone else is there because that's also the prison house of patriarchy. He, he, um, my mother bought me some Old Spice uh, uh, um, aftershave because I wanted to be a man, right? No, I was I was smearing toothpaste on my face, pretending to shave. You know, I was like, you know, three and a half, four years old. My mom bought me this Old Spice. And my father comes home from a long trip. He finds the Old Spice. He assumes there's a man in my mother's bed, which, of course, is me. He comes to the window with a gun to try to kill my mother and this man. And, of course, realizes it's not. Um, the fact that he was so threatened by this possibility is part of the instability of ownership. You cannot own people. You can't control them. And patriarchy is always unstable, just like slavery is always unstable, because you really can't control people. We can do the best you can through violence. That's one way to do it. In our case, when um, my mother and father got divorced and he moved out to Seattle, he realized, and, um, and with the encouragement of his own parents, his adopted parents, uh, that we needed to be with him. And so when we went to visit him one summer in 1971, my father said, you're staying here. You're not going anywhere. My mother tried to come and get us. He wouldn't let us go. And he, again, pulled out a gun and said, you know, you're not taking these kids. And we end up living with them for several years until we ran away from home. That is literal captivity. Most people don't experience that, you know. Um, but that's what happened. And of course, what happens after that when he, you know, people could read about it in in the, in the essay. I won't even give it away, but it it, it it ends up being a trip to Africa and a single engine Cessna and coming back and all kinds of crazy things happen. Which you know, you could you could see it in the movie when it comes out, <laughs> <laughs> right? So you, uh, we're speaking with uh, Robin D. G. Kelly, a historian who uh, returns to This Is Hell to talk about his contribution to the Carrie Lee Merritt co-edited collection, Afterlife, A Collective History of Loss and Redemption in Pandemic America. Robin's essay is titled Buried History, The Death and Life of Donald S. Kelly. So let me talk about that uh, essay for a little bit, because you write how uh, your uh, father, Donald Sherrillton Sher uh, Kelly, mm -hmm. officially died on February 29th, 2020. And you describe your relationship with him as estranged. You write, he called me occasionally, usually on my birthday, but I rarely answered the phone. In 16 years, I think I picked up twice. Both times I began with a contrite explanation for losing touch. I blame my busy schedule, deadlines, the time difference, travel, among other things. And then I listened in silence for the next hour to an earful of mis misogynistic and xenophobic rants, conspiracy theories, random biblical passages, a critique of how I'm ruining my children and why they needed to be saved. So my father and I were not estranged, but we were very distant from one another in that I live in Chicago and he lived near San Diego. And I rarely ever picked up the phone when he would call again, mm -hmm. even when he would call on my birthday. However... You know, I'd see him for a couple of weeks every year, but, you know, throughout the rest of the year, there were no real conversations. And the only conversations we had when we did see each other were, as you described, what you call contrite reasons for losing touch. So what mm -hmm. happens 
When you understand both how society expects you to mourn the loss, to grieve the loss of someone like a parent who is so important to your life and how you are supposed to feel, but your reality does not fit those expectations, that your feelings are not conforming. What happens to your own grieving process when your feelings don't conform what society suggests they should be? Right. It's an excellent question, and I should preface it by saying that this particular piece um, elicited like hundreds of emails from people who basically said exactly what you said, exactly what you said. That is to say, um, you know, I wasn't exactly estranged from my father, but we just, you know, uh, we hardly ever talked. We just were in two different places, and I felt much the same way when my father passed. I mean, this is, and I couldn't believe how many people, and this is not, I'm not talking about black people. I'm talking about people from all over and, and, and males, a lot of young, you know, older men who lost their fathers or who had those relationships. So in many ways, the tragedy is that that's probably more normative than not. And it has a lot to do with the fear of intimacy, I think, when it comes to uh, to relationship between relationships between fathers and sons and males as a whole, you know, think about all the times when a generation of men would would raise their their sons to say, "You can't cry," you know, um, you know, you know, you, you, if you if you cry, you're weak. If you express any kind of emotion, you're weak. You know, so and, and in fact. If anyone's interested in in in, um, uh, uh, in um, I'm blanking out my now, but uh, um, well, I'll, I'll remember in a second. But but there's but we we see this all the time. In terms of you know what what do we do? How how can we shift that? Um, it's going to require changing our relationship to one another. You know. Uh, and not just between men and fathers and sons, uh, but really doing exactly what feminists have been asking us to do, critique patriarchy, critique the um, heteronormative two-parent family, the, the nuclear family, uh, critique family itself, you know, uh, for somehow um, creating more boundaries than openings, you know. And I, I think um, uh, Kendrick Lamar has this amazing song on his most recent album where he talks about his father. I think I can't, can't remember if it's called Father or something. He talks about his father and what his father expected of him. That song, to me, sums it up entirely. Um, what, it, you know, what we lose when we are unable uh, to make these kinds of connections. And that's partly why it's hard to grieve. We don't know how to grieve. I know I don't. I'm still trying to figure that out, you know. Um, but we don't know how, in part because we don't always know how to love. And again, to go back to the right-wing turn that we're dealing with, the continued right-wing fascist turn, we're surrounded by fascists who are telling us we are not allowed to love. You know, we are not allowed to to see other people for who they are. 
Um, we're not allowed to embrace difference. We're not even allowed to be critical of the country, let alone anyone else. You know, um, we're not allowed to be critical of patriarchy or capitalism. So this is the, the order that's imposed upon us. So whenever people say make America great again, they want to return to this Netherland that never ever existed, that's based on the opposite of everything we've been talking about. That is restore order, restore patriarchal order, restore you know the order of free enterprise, restore individualism, eliminate the welfare state, eliminate any sense of freedom uh, for people who may not be uh, 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 gender normative, right? Who may be um, uh, who may not fit the categories that we've inherited, rather than blow them up. And if you want to blow them up, what are you? You're woke. Oh, so uh, I would be remiss to not discuss, uh, well, first of all, the Boston Review's reading list for February where he was titled The Black Scholars Ron DeSantis Doesn't Want Students to Read, which reported the state of Florida made national headlines for rejecting a pilot advanced place, placement African-American studies high school course. Governor Ron DeSantis has since doubled down on the ban, calling the course a form of indoctrination and insisted that the college board's the proposed curriculum violates the Stop Woke Act, that's W-O-K-E, an acronym, a bill DeSantis <laughs> signed into law last year that restricts teaching about race in the classroom. But school, of course, Robin, is an indoctrination of sorts in that we are right. taught to accept a set of beliefs uncritically, as you were just saying, uncritical of capitalism, uncritical of patriarchy. Like the United States is a democracy. It's not only the greatest nation in the world today, but of all time. And K through 12 curriculum is filled with ideas that cannot and are not challenged, like the U.S. having more freedom than any other nation ever. The U.S. is the best Correct. of everything, and anyone who denies it is unpatriotic or American. We certainly are not being taught in U.S. history classes that the U.S. has overthrown many democratically elected leaders and replaced them with brutal dictatorships. Since World War II, the U.S. has done it in you know, Iran, Guatemala, Congo, Dominican Republic, mm -hmm. South Vietnam, Brazil, Chile. And I could go on as U.S. involvement in regime change did not start after World War II, but was also very active prior to the Cold War. So were you and I were we all indoctrinated already in primary schools in the United States? Isn't our <laughs> education system already one that indoctrinates? Of course. You know, it, it is. But, you know, the difference is that um, within a system that is intended to convey certain things, sometimes the, the conveyance of these things are not even in the texts or in the curriculum. It's enforcing people to, to say the Pledge of Allegiance, for example, which is something that when students resist that, and I was one of them, uh, you get punished for that. I mean, that that, that alone is the indoctrination for, for the ages, right? However, there's a difference between what we're seeing now and I think what we've grown up with, and that is with, even within a system in which textbooks are vetted, in which a certain kind of uh, American centrism uh, is taken for granted and imposed upon us. I mean, you know, there's spaces for uh, for difference, for opposition. For I mean, I got a great public education from certain teachers who bucked tradition and actually taught us to think. 
Um, right now, what's happening is that because the Republicans, because the right has control of the state legislatures in a way that they haven't in a long time, they're actually in, able to impose laws and even make it a felony in some circumstances to teach things that are about critically critical thinking. I mean, to teach, to say that to teach about race uh, or to not teach about slavery um, is is in order, or just if you if you teach about slavery, it's, it it could be uh, considered a violation of the law. That's an extreme position where those of us who are in the profession of teaching uh, and those students who are in the, who are who are um, oriented toward asking hard questions are then suddenly silenced in a way that I've never seen in my lifetime. You know, so these are really dangerous times. And the sad thing is, like we've been fighting as you know, for a long time to try to change uh, edu public education. You know, it's, it's a long struggle. It's like my whole life uh, that's been a struggle. But imagine you're, you're fighting this battle and all of a sudden you get hit from the right with now you can't talk about anything except you love this country and you're going to make America great again. So we have to then mobilize just to fight that, to get back to the work of trying to transform education. Jeez. You know? One last question for you, Robin, and as we do with all of our guests, I promise our final question is always what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may <laughs> hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. And before we go, I just got to say thank you so much for being back on the show. It is always an absolute pleasure talking to you. We've been speaking with yes, Robert D.G. Kelly, returns to This Is Hell to talk about his contribution to the Carrie Lee Merritt co-edited collection, After Life. The name of his essay is Buried History, the Death and Life of Donald S. Kelly. So our final question question for you is the Boston Review article uh, continues stating that whether any of the Florida officials involved in the decision to ban your work have read Kelly's work is doubtful. As Kelly pointed out, one of the central arguments of his uh, Boston Review essay is that reading black experience through trauma can easily slip into thinking of ourselves as victims and objects mm -hmm. rather than agents, a point that politicians who frequently rail against the culture of victimhood ought to find co congenial. Rather than victimization, Kelly emphasizes, quote, how we have fought for justice, not just for black people, but for the whole nation, yes, including struggling white people, despite the violence right. and oppression we have experienced. So that makes me reflect upon all of the victimization, self-victimization uh, that I see on Fox News on a regular basis, how they always uh, you know, frame themselves as the, the victims, as the abused right. in every situation. In your opinion, what happens to the struggle for justice for all people by banning the study of the struggle for justice that African-Americans have gauged in since the beginning of the United States. What does censoring that struggle for justice do to the struggle for justice for white people? What happens when we don't have critical thinking and, and we're you know focused on justice? That is the question to turn hell into something better. <laughs> that's a good that's the question that we have to ask that's the fundamental question because um the, uh, the the irony is that those claiming victimhood all the time are usually not just white people but white people who feel like they could speak for all white people <laughs> they're the ones they're way more victim i identified than any black or brown people or indigenous people i know you know or even white working class people so that's one thing. But the second thing, what does it do for these struggles? Imagine what it means to A, 
ban any reading or writing about anti-racism. Because it's not just about Black history, it's about anti-racism. Any struggles against racism, which actually are struggles that are also for the class because eliminate racism is eliminate things like wage differentials, uh, which makes Southern white workers get paid less than the rest um, to eliminate um, the kind of barriers that make it difficult for uh, for us to challenge capitalism and in increase the, the the life chances for all of us uh, to 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 eliminate anti-racism is to eliminate the stories of efforts to try to change the um, the healthcare system so that we actually have access to healthcare for all people, right? Uh, to to uh, to address things like you know the high uh, infant mortality rate among Black women that if we address that would increase the chances of reducing mortality rates for in, infant mortality rates for all people. Like these are just basic things. So and meanwhile, what doesn't get banned? What doesn't get banned are the racist texts. Thomas Jefferson's Notes on Virginia, for example, um, the, the, the writings of 20th century um, racists like Madison Grant and all these other people. None of that stuff gets erased. And I'm not saying it should be. I'm not saying that you should ban any books. But the irony is that what they want to do is circulate books that promote racism, eliminate books that 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 actually examine anti-racism, and then convince all these white people, working class white people, that somehow your life will be better under racism, that that the reimposition of a racist order, without calling it that, in which white people are on top, is going to make your life better. But all it does is make white working class lives more miserable and capital more um, dynamic, solid, powerful, and you basically are moving toward redistribution, redistributing wealth upward, right? And that is the tragedy. And, and I think they know this because it, because if, if more white working class people understood our history or American history, they'd see the relationship between indigenous dispossession, settler colonialism, racism, patriarchy, uh, and oppressions of sexuality and how it affects them and undermines their quality of life. You know, not to mention what you talked about, that is all the money and resources that we spend on things like uh, foreign wars and interventions, let alone the fact that a city like Chicago could spend literally billions of dollars on wrongful death suits and police brutality, a lot of it directed mostly at black and brown people, which who pays for that? Taxpayers pay for that, you know, and bondholders make money off of that. So you've got all these white people paying for police brutality and they don't even realize it. Like what's wrong with them? Like what's wrong with them? That's why they need to learn these things. And we need to do a better job of teaching them. Robin, again, a true pleasure. Two things. First of all, Lindsay will get you the video of her cat playing synthesizer very shortly. And I got a, a real quick story to tell you. It'll only take less than a minute. A friend of mine, when I was younger, he uh, got his first tattoo. It was on his back of his left. It was on his left shoulder blade, so he couldn't see it. And he said, I got a tattoo of a tall ship. You've got to see it. And I looked at it, and it was beautifully done. It was very complicated, very complex. It was absolutely stunning until we realized it was the ship from the Old Spice bottle. 
<laughs> so That's I knew cool. I knew you'd like that story. So Robin, thank you so much. And when I, next time I thank email you, you I'll tell you I'm the Old Spice tattoo storyteller, and you'll remember who I am. <laughs> of course, I can't forget you, Chuck. All right, thank you very much, Robin. Really appreciate it. Yes, thank you. Historian Robin D.G. Kelly has returned to This Is Hell to talk about his contribution to the Carrie Lee Merritt co-edited collection, Afterlife, A Collective History of Loss and Redemption in Pandemic America. I strongly suggest you get the book, but check out Robin's essay. He said, I guess they posted a shorter version at The Nation, and you can check it out there. It's called Buried History, The Death and Life of Donald S. Kelly. Absolutely amazing work, and this whole collection is really something that everybody should be reading, especially in this age of an ongoing pandemic you are listening to god's favorite radio show prove me wrong this is hell if what you just heard from robin dg kelly on death what it means to grieve for those trapped in the prison of patriarchy if that made you realize that yes this really is hell show your support by becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus patreon podcast which streams live maybe Thursday, maybe Friday this week at 10 a.m. Chicago time, and is podcast shortly after at patreon.com slash thisishell. I'll tell you why we're not certain about when Patreon's going to happen this week in a little bit. Or you can show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell by visiting thisishell.com and just clicking on support. Lindsay, please remind us, what is this week's question from Hell? And tell us how our listeners are responding so far. I think we got through all the Patreon ones yesterday, so whichever ones you want to read otherwise. So what's this week's question from Hell again? This week's question from Hell is, what mission did you declare accomplished prematurely? (laughs) Okay. What mission did you declare accomplished prematurely? I like that. I am still scrolling Facebook. Where is it? Is it? I hate Facebook. (laughs) That's why I just want to refer to it as F book from now on, just as like it's an an expletive and a profanity, so we don't have to ever say Facebook ever again. We should. That's a good idea. I'll try and do it. Yeah, that's like because that'll make a better world, like using people's preferred pronouns. (laughs) Exactly. Where is it? Is it here? Is on, it on it, Facebook? It should be on the Facebook is page. Is it on Fbook? Excuse me. Excuse <laughs> me. Um, what day is it today? Tuesday? Yeah. Uh, I think I posted it on Sunday night. Five days ago. Four days ago. Four days ago. Um, one day ago. See, I don't know if this page is in order or what. Uh. Why don't you look for it while I'm reading something else? Okay. All right. So, uh, let's see. Um, It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, this week in rotten history. On March 20th, 2003, 20 years ago this week, and related to our question from hell this week, what what did you uh, prematurely state was mission accomplished? On March 20, 2003, 20 years ago this week, military forces of the United States and the United Kingdom, along with some troops from a few other countries who were intimidated into joining, launched an unprovoked large-scale invasion and eventual occupation of Iraq, which by international law is illegal, and a warrant for the arrest of President George W. Bush for war crimes should have immediately been produced. 
but it was not. You probably heard about the warrant for Vladimir Putin's arrest, which is totally right if he uh, is having a warrant up for his arrest for an illegal invasion and occupation of Ukraine. That is something that is completely illegal and is exactly like what George W. Nothing is exactly like, but is akin to what George W. Bush and the Bush-Cheney administration did in the invasion of Iraq. However, that ICC warrant has now been changed to only focus on the kidnapping of Ukrainian children, and then they were sent back to Russia in kind of uh, Native American boarding school fashion. So they changed the warrant to that because they couldn't you can't claim that President George W. Bush did the exact same thing. However, if they had said this is because of an illegal invasion and occupation, then that would have been the exact same crime that George W. Bush did, and they just couldn't do that. The Bush-Cheney administration in the U.S. claimed that Iraq dictator Saddam Hussein had acquired weapons of mass destruction. No evidence of such weapons were ever found. But despite warnings from political experts and despite major anti-war demonstrations, around the world, an opinion poll found 76% of U.S. Americans in support of the Iraq war, apparently for no rational reason whatsoever. Other than, of course, the U.S. has the most advanced and sophisticated propaganda system in the world, a system most Americans deny exists. And my guess of the percentage of Americans in denial about the American propaganda system is probably right around 76%. The operation was also backed by majorities in both houses of Congress, including Democratic Senator and future President Joe Biden, naturally. I never saw a war he didn't like. Over the next few years, well over 100,000 people in Iraq were killed, along with more than 5,000 troops from the U.S. and British-led coalitions. Of course, those are all reported numbers, so the actual number who died is uncertain. Saddam Hussein was removed from power, replaced by an ineffectual puppet regime, and later killed. The result was an unstable power vacuum exploited by violent extremist groups with the so-called Islamic State and widespread sectarian violence across Iraq that continues to this day. And all we got out of it was a stupid ribbon-shaped bumper sticker that says support the troops apparently by pushing for a completely unnecessary and avoidable war that senselessly took the lives of many of those same troops ribbon bumper sticker owners were supposedly supporting. In Rotten History, March 21st, 1937, 86 years ago this week, several hundred demonstrators led by paramilitary cadets affiliated with the Puerto Rican Nationalist Party gathered in Ponce, Puerto Rico for a march to protest U.S. domination of the island. And if you are into U.S. domination and attempts at domination, then this week's rotten history is for you. Though the law did not require the demonstrators to get a permit, they had obtained one anyway, as a gesture of courtesy to the local government. Courteous protesters. That's, that's nice. But upon hearing of the demonstration, the U.S. appointed t territorial governor, General Blanton Winship, oh, the history of this guy is just awful, ordered riot police to the scene, and as the marchers began moving down the street, more than a hundred police opened fire with rifles and machine guns and tear gas, because that's what the history of U.S. domination in the Western Hemisphere and abroad looks like. Over the next 15 minutes, the cops killed 19 unarmed marchers and wounded another 200 men, women, and children. Many were shot or even beaten to death as they tried to flee. General Winship later told Washington that the Nationalist cadets had shot first, and at first his words were reported as fact in U.S. news media, because in the U.S., 
if the military says it's true, that's good enough for the press. But they were soon found out to be lies, which is not surprising. After Winship survived an assassination attempt the following year, President Roosevelt finally removed him from his position as territorial governor in 1939. But aside from losing his job, Winship was never penalized for his role in the so-called Punce Massacre, nor were any police prosecuted. And I seriously doubt that's being taught in high school history classes that are neck deep in patriotic propaganda. And that's before Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, DeSantis started his campaign of whitewashing American history. In Rotten History, March 22nd, 1687. Yeah, a lot of rotten history today. 336 years ago this week, the French Baroque composer, musician, and dancer Jean-Baptiste Lully died in Paris. Former court musician to Louis XIV, Lully had injured himself while conducting a performance of his music. By accidentally hitting his foot with a long, heavy wooden staff of the type commonly used by conductors in his day. So in the past, a conductor used to look a lot more like a, a magician like Gandalf than the baton waver we are used to today. Got it. That's weird. Didn't know. The foot became inject infected to the point that doctors wanted to remove it, but Luli, to whom dancing was très important, refused to let them amputate his foot. The infection soon turned to gangrene, which spread to Luli's brain, and killed him at the age of 54. And that's why they switched to batons, one can only assume. And yes, this week there's even more rotten history. On May, March 23rd, 1961, 62 years ago this week, a 24-year-old Ukrainian test pilot named Valentin Bondarenko was one of 20 newly minted Soviet cosmonauts competing for the chance to be the first person in space. At a test facility near Moscow, Bondarenko was in the midst of a 15-day endurance test inside a low-pressure altitude chamber in which the normal Earth atmosphere of 21% oxygen had been raised to an artificially high level above 50% to mimic the air that would be inside of the spacecraft. And after 10 days in the chamber, Bondarenko was tired. At the end of a work session, he was removing medical electrodes from his body, cleaning the sticky glue off himself with a cotton ball soaked in alcohol. He absentmindedly tossed the cotton ball away without watching where it was going, and it landed on an electric hot plate he was using to brew a pot of tea in the artificially oxygen-rich atmosphere. It exploded into flames that quickly spread to Bondarenko's clothing. Lab workers pounded on the test chamber door, which refused to yield because of the air pressure differential from the inside of the chamber to the outside. By the time they finally got it open, Bondarenko was covered in third-degree burns, and as he was carried out, still conscious, he could be heard mumbling repeatedly, quote, Don't blame anybody. It was my fault. Within hours, Bondarenko was dead. Two weeks later, Yuri Gagarin flew his uh, flew into space and made headlines around the world, which makes you wonder, why have we never heard of Bondarenko? Bondarenko's death was kept secret. Oh, that's why. But and he was carefully uh, airbrushed out of group photos of the Soviet cosmonauts, which is not only creepy, it's just plain rude and disrespectful, and you'd figure everybody's going to notice, right? 
But his sudden absence, which was noted by a few experts in the West, fueled conspiracy theories that alleged he had been launched into space before Gagarin and had died in orbit, which is why you do not keep secrets because a lack of transparency is the rocket fuel of conspiracy theories. Finally, in Rotten History on March 24th, 2021, two years ago this week, and 60 years and a day after Bondarenko's death, the Russian state Duma passed a constitutional amendment modifying the presidential term limit to allow Vladimir Putin potentially to remain in power until the year 2034. That's for 11 more years. The amendment had been introduced by another cosmonaut, the 86-year-old Valentina Tereshkova, now a member of the Russian parliament from Putin's United Russia Party. In June 1963, Tereshkova had spent three days in orbit in a politically motivated space spectacular meant to ensure that the first woman in space would be a Soviet citizen. Since the Soviets had no female test pilots, they recruited Tereshkova, who was a textile worker and amateur parachute jumper. Today, Tereshkova is a staunch supporter of Vladimir Putin, naturally. In a 2017 interview published in The Guardian, she said, quote, we all experienced the end of the Soviet Union as a personal tragedy, and we cannot forgive those who allowed it to happen. Putin gave us hope again. He's a splendid person. Of the last Soviet leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, Tereshkova said, quote, I don't respect him. I don't even want to hear his name again. Which is the kind of rotten history we all need to have a better understanding of what the hell is happening in Ukraine. Now that's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Lindsay, what is this week's question from Hell again, and do you have answers from our listeners? I do. Sweet. This week's question So I didn't. So I didn't forget to post it on Facebook? I actually did post it on Facebook? You did, but wow. I will say uh, it just, since there was something written before it, I think it was harder for people to see that uh, as a question. Uh, you got to put question from hell at the top in big, right. bold You're right. letters. I apologize. Um, you're right. Because there, there's only a, there's only a couple of responses here on the face, the F book. The, the F, F book. book. Okay. Yeah, I'm trying. I'm, I think, I do think it's better. <laughs> Let's stop advertising That's for right. meta, whatever it's called these days. <laughs> so creepy. Okay. It is creepy. And I hate the fact that now you get a... Uh, you know, post from FBook, and they'll tell you now you have to go over to the meta site, and you got. I don't understand that at all. I, I don't. don't. It's so dumb. So this week's question from Hell: What mission did you declare accomplished prematurely? From Ray O said, "Growing up." All right, that's good. <laughs> that's a good one. Uh, Riley C D says. Definitely calling Pluto a planet and teaching millions of school children garbage mnemonics to remember its place in the solar system. Where's my ninth pizza, mother? <laughs> wow. That's bizarre <laughs> from a Milwaukee school teacher. <laughs> <laughs> but does it matter if Pluto's a planet or not? It's still there, right? Yeah. <laughs> Who cares? I mean, I'm they sure... They found it in Arizona, so... <laughs> right, exactly. In like 1930. It is something to consider if you're thinking about... Um, Pride of being an astro- Arizona student? <laughs> yeah, with the astrology of Pluto. You know, in astrology, people are like, Pluto is this intense planet. It's like, people didn't even know about it until 1930. So you have to keep that in perspective. <laughs> Deal with it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that's all we got here on the F book. So back to... Over on... 
Elon Muskiverse uh, <laughs> Twitter, or so it's called. There are more responses. All right. And I just have to track them down. They're right here. They're pinned to the top. Look at that. I did that right. Nice. Thank so, you. So, <laughs> uh, let's see. We got a message. Or So, the question from Hal, again, is what mission did you declare accomplished prematurely? The only response I can think of personally is dishes. <laughs> <laughs> you still haven't finished them? I never do. <laughs> like, <laughs> they're just never ending. You eat every day, usually, uh, if you're lucky. It's so irritating that you can never have every dish clean. I know it's just my OCD that was really triggered by the uh, pandemic, but and man. And you have a dishwasher. And I have a dishwasher. Okay? I don't. I, know. I don't. <laughs> I, have, I have a broken portable dishwasher that's now just my dish storage. Oh, nice. So, for the dirty dishes, Sweet. if I want to I've never seen my sink clean. I don't know what it looks like. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know if that's the sink. Yeah, but anyways, back to the listener responses for this week's question from hell. What mission did you declare accomplished prematurely? From at Claymo1, uh, it's a YouTube link, video rewind to Bush's mission accomplished Accomplished speech. speech. From at Rock Taster, what mission did you declare accomplished prematurely? Rock Taster says that we had descended into the ninth circle nine or tw- the ninth circle twenty years ago. Clearly, it can get much worse. <laughs> the ninth circle of hell. Yeah, uh, twenty years ago. Wow. Yeah. So, so is there a tenth? I guess it's that's like what we're while in now. you've been doing this show, this is how you've just dug yourself deeper and deeper <laughs> into hell. <laughs> Sweet. Uh, <laughs> no wonder I'm always so happy. At Korg.org says the war on terror. That mission is endless. Yeah. Uh, Nick, Nick E says, uh, marriage and divorce. <laughs> so he declared his marriage prematurely, uh, and also divorced prematurely. <laughs> yes, he got married it's again. It's a successful mission twice. It happens. That could happen. People get mar- same people get married twice sure. or three times, even to the same person sometimes. Anymore? Uh, yeah. Well, there's just two more. So should I read no, them let's now? Save those for, let's save, save those for Dan for, for, for tomorrow. Future? Okay. Yeah. Or whatever the next time we do a show, which if we'll explain we in a second. If we do a show. <laughs> so you can send us your guest or topic suggestions to chuck at thisishell.com. You can message them to us via Fbook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio or tweet them at us at thisishellradio. And if we have your guest or topic suggestion on the show, we will thank you on air. As we thanked Wally R. yesterday for suggesting we have Dean Baker on the show to discuss the bank failures that have occurred over the last couple of weeks. Or you can send or post anything you want, and we'll likely read it on air. For instance, after posting last week's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, subscriber Dean T. left this comment about my monologue on finding hope and happiness during last week's hell. I know, go figure. And the impact all that hope and happiness from last week's guests had on my own ongoing depression. Dean writes, Hi Chuck, I really appreciated this week's musings as I can certainly relate to the long-term depression that I have also experienced in the past as I came to understand our likely grim future. That said, uh, an antidote may be in a book I'm in the midst of reading called, oh Jesus, you gotta be kidding me. I want a better catastrophe, navigating the climate crisis with grief, hope, and gallows humor, written by Andrew Boyd. I feel like Andrew would make for a really good interview. Keep smiling. Dean. 
So, Dean, I got to tell you, great minds think alike, and I don't mean yours and mine, but yours and contributor Jeff Dorchins, who is a person who writes and delivers the moment of truth every week here on the show. Jeff has been requesting we have Andrew on the show for a couple of weeks. We even got a copy of Andrew's book in the mail. And get this, if you are listening to the live stream, you're not listening to the show on WNUR or on Beware the Radio or Lumpen or Radio Free Moscow or CKUW in Winnipeg. If you are listening right now, tonight, Tuesday, March 21st, Andrew is doing a night of stand-up, no, not comedy, but tragedy this evening at 6.30 p.m. at Afterwards Bookstore, 23 East Illinois in Chicago. According to their Eventbrite page, Andrew will read some passages, laugh some dark laughs, sign some books, gnash some teeth, explore some of our possible futures via oversized flowcharts, not necessarily in that order. The evening will not be a boring book reading. It will be interactive, participatory fun. It'll be a chance to come together and, aided by gallows humor and some unusual prompts, reflect on some of the biggest questions before us today. To tackle the climate emergency, we need each other. We need solidarity and laughter and all the rest. We hope to see you there. So that's happening tonight, again, Tuesday, March 21st. Andrew is doing a night of stand-up tragedy beginning at 6.30 p.m. at Afterwards Bookstore, 23 East Illinois in Chicago. That's 23 East Illinois in Chicago. If you have an event that you would like us to know about, message us on Facebook or DM us via Twitter or email us at chuckatthisishell.com and we'll share that on the show too. So this is when Lindsay would normally be telling us who our next guest is here on This Is Hell. And I've been working really hard for the last couple of weeks at trying to get somebody to give their perspective on what has happened, what the lessons possibly learned, the lessons that are not learned from the war that began 20 years ago and ended in a complete failure for the United States government and led led to a lot of suffering and death in Iraq that was completely avoided. So that's what I'm working on. I'm trying to get somebody on the show to discuss, give us a 20-year perspective, and hopefully somebody from Iraq. A reporter from Iraq would be fantastic. And I actually talked to somebody who said that they could return to the show, who's been on the show in the past, and would like to discuss the subject, Uh, but I haven't heard from them yet. There might be an email in my inbox right now that I don't know about because I don't have a computer here in the interview booth, and boy, do I wish I did. So you'll just have to, you know, stay tuned in, follow us on social media, check out our Discord, check us out on Twitter, check us out on Facebook, check us out on Instagram, all those different places. We will be announcing tomorrow's guest as soon as we know who it is. And, of course, as always, we will have a moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, and live-streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Lindsay Gorey for producing. Really appreciate it. It is always a blast doing a show with you. Likewise. This is not democracy now or ever. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>